0: Attention listeners, do you ever find yourself struggling to decide what to watch on a Saturday night when you're in the mood for horror? Or perhaps you're trying to round out your own horror film education. In either case, I'm sure you'll be able to make some great discoveries in my 10 x 10 horror watch list featuring a breakdown of the 10 favorite horror movies from 10 renowned horror directors. We did a deep dive of the favorite horror movies from directors including Guillermo del Toro, Ari Aster, Jordan Peele, Quentin Tarantino, James Gunn, Rob Zombie, Martin Scorsese, and many, many more. Here you'll find a collection of each director's favorite horror movies, along with quotes about what they appreciated about the films, all in an easy-to-reference PDF that you can download absolutely free. Featuring a mix of well-worn classics and deep cuts, hopefully you'll discover some overlooked gems and look at old classics through new lenses. Download the 10x10 Horror Watch list for free by visiting nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. That's nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. One last thing before we begin, and this is my email newsletter, The Howl. The Howl is a monthly rundown of the latest horror news along with my hand-picked movie recommendations, updates from the show, and cool stuff I've recently discovered, all in one quick read email delivered to your inbox only once a month. Easy to read, easy to sign up for, and easy to cancel. Join The Howl newsletter by visiting nicktaylor.com slash thehowl. That's nicktaylor.com slash the howl.
1: <laughs>
0: Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. As always, each episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show explores how today's horror filmmakers are getting their movies made while deconstructing their methods and career strategies into practical insights that you can use on your own horror filmmaking journey. This includes creative processes, funding resources, favorite books and tools, key life lessons, and much, much more. Today we have a dynamic duo, director Anthony De Blasi and his wife, actress Natalie Victoria. After graduating from Emerson College and moving to Los Angeles, Anthony became a protege of Clive Barker and worked alongside him on films including Midnight Meat Train and 2009's Book of Blood. Anthony then made his directorial debut with the thriller Dread, which was based on a Clive Barker short story. One of Anthony's most acclaimed films was Last Shift, released in 2015 by Magnolia Pictures. His filmography also includes the psychological thriller Extremity from 2018. Now let's talk about Anthony's wife, Natalie Victoria. Beginning her career in theater, Natalie has earned multiple awards and recognition for her acting and writing. Natalie's acted in multiple features, short films and plays, including The Comedy Deadheads and The Last Shift. Natalie is also in Anthony's latest release, Malum, which is actually a remake of Last Shift. The film follows a rookie police officer as she uncovers the eerie connection between her father's death and a vicious cult during her shift at a decommissioned police station. As the lone officer on duty, she finds herself in the midst of a terrifying series of paranormal events while learning the shocking truth about her family's history with the cult. In today's conversation, we get into the importance of building trust with your actors, how to craft horror based on your personal fears, and Anthony's 10 years working with Clive Barker. Here for your listening pleasure are Natalie Victoria and Anthony de Blasi. So in terms of subject matter, this dealt with a lot of very intense subject matter like demonic possession and uh, cults, satanic cults. What was the research process like?
2: Well, you know, since Scott and I wrote, last shift right? mm-hmm. so we'll talk about this briefly right this is this is a reimagining of last shift that right. we did in 2014 you know almost a decade later so you know we did a lot of our homework then okay a lot of because i think that my basic premise for that film number one being very contained was you know the manson family's scary but they'd be scarier if they were ghosts mm. so like that's the starting point and and then we ended up in the police station. So for this one, it was kind of like, oh, we know what we're doing, we know the parameters. Um, so you know, the world has changed a bit since since the last shift. We wanted to deepen the mythology. I think the biggest change was we didn't really want it to be a satanic cult. You know, we we wanted to create our own mythology with the with the cult. We wanted people to hear terms they hadn't heard before, you know, going in. They'll think, oh, it's demons and stuff, and then and then we kind of present something a little different, something that's not quite, it's not quite satanic, but it's something completely different there. Yeah. So that was a big, a big that was a big challenge, and we didn't really solve that problem until the last draft, because you know we had we had the whole script written, and we were doing rewrites, and we're he- about to head in the casting, and I wasn't nervous about it, but I was still like. I don't really like the cult. I think they're too reflective of the first film. I had all these notes and... Because you try to create something new. You're like, okay, what is it going to be? What is it going to be? And finally, I think when we wrote... Because there's a song in the film that was... A version of was in the first film as well. It was when we wrote the other verses of that.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: That I'm like, okay, now I kind of see what what they worship, what their point of view is. And then it all fell into place rather quickly. Once we got to that last stage, it was kind of like these terms, like the low God and the flock, of the low God. And right. um, the temple baron, which is a character that appears in the movie actually came to me in a dream. And it wasn't, Ooh. it wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> like, Oh, I dreamed of this thing. It was kind of creepier than that. Cause it was, this was a couple of years ago. And I, I, something was like talking in my ear and it said, we are the temple barons. Listen to our plans. And I woke up and I was like, what the fuck are the temple barons? And I'm like Googling it. And I'm like, that's nothing that existed. And, and I wrote it down and now it made its way into this movie. So if you watch this movie and start having visions of some other demonic world, I can't be held responsible. It's like, <laughs> he just told me, Listen to his plans. I'm listening to the plans. Wow. Just oh part of the plan.
0: Came to you in a dream. You got to smudge yeah. this shit out of that room. Yeah. <laughs> like some sage. I How know. About. Oh, wow. I the
2: thing was at our last. It was at our last place. Oh, okay, we're good, good. now. We, we moved out of that place. Oh, good. That place was super haunted. So we're out
1: now. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because um, he, he actually had all these sketches, too, of, you know, the monster that he just, you know, sketched out and then kind of handled off to, um, Russell and the Russells to just kind of. Create, you know, from those sketches and, you know, they did such a great job bringing those original sketches, like, you know, to life. But I think what is so great about the monsters too, is that, yeah, I mean, it does, it feels familiar, but not because it almost predates, you know, um, Christianity and And it's, um, it's something that's much deeper and ancient like an ancient mythology um, which definitely brings something new you know to the fan base and so that was that was cool
0: yeah it did look familiar but it I couldn't compare it to any other creatures so it was just yeah. I was wondering but what was the approach to the creature design like
2: it was all based on the functionality um, of you know in the, in the first film we had this the, the main villain had this carved pentagram on his face Mm -hmm. um and i we all wanted to keep a version of that going into this movie so what in that first movie it it was like it's basically an upside upside down star because he doesn't really have the you can look at his head as the circle but it wasn't really a pentagram um so there was something i wanted to do in this one it's like well when that thing is removed and you see it's it's an inverted pentagram with the circle and stuff and that was kind of the where it started like i knew i knew i wanted to do this this shot where it came off the face and then it was like oh yeah i mean some people may not even notice it mm-hmm. that what it is until later but that was the okay that was kind of the starting point for what he was going to look like okay and kind of worked our way backwards wrap backwards from that nice
0: and did you look at any biblical demonic designs or images or creatures or anything like that to, to kind of get the design details?
2: I mean, not really. Cause I mean, we, we wanted to s- kind of stay away from the biblical stuff. I, I had some artwork um, that I pulled, not a lot of stuff except for like the clothing. What was the clothing going it look like and stuff for a lot of the other design work in the movie that, kind of used artwork to inspire us like Mm -hmm. here's some here's a basis of what this could be more abstracty kind of stuff yeah Um, so that could it could never really be translated literally because the artwork was so abstract so i kind of relied on russell effects a lot like my these sketches were again like okay this is what i'm seeing in my head from the script and how do we take this to the next level so Mm -hmm uh they really upped i mean they put all that detail into it and, and it kind of upped what it could be yeah yeah it was i'll very also terrifying. share this
1: tid- tidbit to like your listeners you know because i know most of them are um you know aspiring you know horror filmmakers or horror filmmakers you know looking to make the next big thing so um anthony has this huge book there's actually piles of them there's not just one where there's just a ridiculous amount of like all these doodlings and sketches of just crazy monsters that you've never seen hmm. in your life, just like stuff out of his head that he did while he was at Emerson college. Oh wow. And I think that that's really interesting. And I think he forgets this stuff, but you know, <laughs> but I think subconsciously it gets into your head and then, you know, years go by and you know, you're, you're in the, the system, you know, in Hollywood, you know, and hustling away and trying to get your projects made and, and that, creativity comes back Hmm. you know as you're starting to you know develop these new monsters and you know for your next movie and whatnot so i would say to you know all the people listening now it's like you know save those books of your doodles and that creativity and and during that time period you know because as you kind of get bogged down with you know the creativity balancing the creativity and the business side it becomes harder to kind of tap into that so it's, it's good to keep you know, those materials to kind of pull from
2: um, and inspire you later.
0: Yeah, that's a great tip.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a good point to say, like, I think think some filmmakers do this, you know, you have this catalog, right? All these things that you've written down or drawn or like just all this stuff, all these seeds of ideas. And eventually you find a project. This was one of those projects where I could be like, you know, I had this set piece, I had this scare, I have all these things in my head that I could kind of, bring into this movie i think this movie more than any i was able to go back to like the repository and and pull up things that had been lingering and like okay here's here's like my a lot of best of things that got left behind and like can i put them all into this film i think because of that haunted house kind of fun house Mm. sensibility there's there is almost i could throw a lot into it
0: yeah yeah, I feel like that's a great tip because I feel like your subconscious is always giving you ideas and you just got to keep writing them down and it could be 10 wow. years before you yeah. use something, you know, for yeah. sure. So you need a good, like all you listeners get a good note taking system. Evernote is a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I use and we that, do that a lot. for
2: our
1: other writing projects too. It's like a minute, like we think of something we're like, write that down, write that down, you know, Yeah. cause it could be weeks before we can kind of get back to that to then flush that out in the script um, just cause you know, you're always juggling several projects. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. Yeah. And I it can be like shocking that. when you look back at old notes and you totally forget these details and they fit perfectly oh, yeah. to whatever you're working on. And it's like, Oh my God. It's like your, your yes. past self was looking out for your future self or something. I don't yeah, know. Yep. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, just going back to what you said about something coming to you, coming to you in a dream. I'm not surprised to hear that because there were moments that were so hellish and bizarre and surreal that I thought, this could only be from somebody's subconscious, you know, this could yeah. only could have come through in a dream. Like I noticed that in cer- certain other movies, like a lot of David Lynch's work, things come to him in dreams. There's stuff that you just like, our minds just can't come up with on their own, you know, consciously. Uh, I could tell that there was a lot of, you know, dream sequences in there. Um, but yeah, yeah, tonally the, the ending was the, extremely
2: horrifying
0: um was that another vision that came from a dream because it was it was palpably frightening
2: i think um you know something i like to do in in horror is i always want to make sure there's something more emotionally attached in the movie that people are like oh that kind of hit me in a way that is either disturbing or or um sad or or moving um and just you- because it's whole yeah or makes you think and just because it's horror i think that you should always try to 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 reach for that higher level for an audience to be like okay i came away with that yeah. with a certain emotion that i wasn't expecting um so we knew the ending was gonna shift tonally a little bit in the sense that it's just you know we're kind of with jessula who plays jessica loren in the movie we're with her and we're in her point of view or empathizing with her so much in the film we get to that ending and it's all on her shoulders so as a filmmaker jess was also the type of actor that the more i work to make things feel real for her the more she could just give in to the to the character and just let herself go with it yeah so i think on a horror movie especially you can try to create an environment that is as horrific as possible. Um, and we, we have this kind of, uh, I mean, in a way, not, not in me as a direct, not like in a Kubrick way, but, but, <laughs> but, but uh, in a Shelley Duvall Kubrick way, but in a way that I almost like you're doing a stage play, right? You're setting an environment, you're turning down the lights, you're keeping the crew out of her eyeline and you're keeping them, you're in darkness yourself and you're allowing her to live in the moment and to feel scared about things and in that last sequence it's on the page uh, you know written with all this heckling and and stuff but that really didn't come to life until you know i started you know started to meet the other cast members and pick from the background cast who i thought were really strong and and bringing them all here and saying like okay because i think as a this is an important part where you have to like throw in some ways production out the window Mm. Because clearly, if when people see the movie, there's a sequence where there's like, you know, 50 people screaming and she's screaming, everyone's screaming at the same time. And and I said, well, this is going to get Jess. She also doesn't know what's coming half the time. You know, I'll talk to the I'll talk to the background. I'll talk to the other cast. I'll, I'll talk to these. I'll, I'll be like, you do this and you do this. And she doesn't know. So she's in the moment. And then it becomes more real and more real. And and she's like, and it goes on and on because we're doing long takes. And then she has a real reaction to this kind of struggle session that's going on around her. And where it got her to places that were very dark. And and it would take her many minutes to come out of. And I think that's when you know that you're, you're finding something special because the actor is so affected by it. And she was very much affected by it it felt very real to her with all these people. But when you're in that moment, you kind of have to decide, like, how are we going to retain this audio? You know, your sound team is going to push back. But I managed to keep it all in the movie. Um, just make sure you have the, the, the as many mics on it as you can so you can clean it up as much as possible. Because you want to create that environment. And the the last thing you want to do is have to tell the actor, well, we got to do this in ADR. You know, you, I know you gave this great performance, but we're going to have to re-record the audio. So. Right. But I think to me impor- that performance is the most important thing. If it hurts the other departments, it's worth doing.
0: Hmm. I feel like that's a really good point. Because without a compelling performance, you don't believe it. And if you don't believe it, it's not going to scare you. Um, yeah. I mean, that being said, what are some of the keys to creating those really intense emotions within your actor while still, you know, creep? doing it in a safe way. like how, In other words, how do you make hell a safe space for your actors?
2: I've, and, it, you know, Natalie can talk about this too once, like, because she's in the film and we've worked together before and, like, and, you know, with Jess, I think it all starts in that first meeting, right? The mm-hmm. first time you meet with an actor, especially your lead actor, um, I'm the kind of person that likes to break the ice immediately. Like, I, I don't want, like, niceties or, like, I want to get to know someone within five minutes and then and it can create make them feel comfortable enough where they can start talking you know sharing very private things about myself very quickly on on so that they can feel comfortable to share on their side and then Mm. we can really get to the heart of like what is our working relationship going to be like and if you're not feeling that with an actor maybe they're not the right choice Mm. or you know you as a filmmaker you may be in a position where you like you have to hire a certain actor and then do your best to to make that happen but with jess it was very much we had that shorthand in that first meeting and i was like okay we're gonna be able to take this really far so you always want that actor to be able to come to you with anything everything so that they feel comfortable and we we also push push the more dramatic moments to the end of the, the schedule mm. so that she like could feel like she was building up to that moment like the journey was actually there um through the production and, and leading to this sequence uh, or these sequences at the end um but it, it really is about trust I think that's the biggest thing like you don't ever if you ever make your actor feel ashamed then you've you killed it mm-hmm. you lost all that trust yeah and it doesn't matter how like if you feel like they're not doing what you want from them. I think it's always your job as a director to to just figure it out. Yeah, Figure out a better way to talk to them. Figure out a better way to communicate with them. Um, and never make them feel like they're... Also, I think this is the most important thing. Never let the schedule affect your actor. Never let You're going to have... A, you as a director, here's your cast in front of you. Here's everything else behind you, which is way more going on. Never let your cast feel that. Mm-hmm. Try it. And never let them feel they may feel some of the chaos of just a set but never let them feel the time yeah never make them feel like oh we got to get this fast oh we got to do this real fast no matter how much i'm hearing that from the producers or the ad the if this AD. is going on then turn <laughs> around and go up to your actor and just be like we got plenty of time Never convey that to them because you're going to stifle them Mm, if if they feel like they're pressured.
0: I feel like that's huge. Is that a conversation you have with your first AD, like on day one? Like, hey, we got to protect the actors from this?
2: DP and cinematographer, I think it's huge to tell them in pre-production, this is how I work. Um, Never bring that presence to the set. Because sometimes DPs, once they hit a certain frustrated point, which they always will, sometimes... (laughs) <laughs> they may start talking to your actor. Like, just don't. And if that does happen, just pull them aside quite and say, remember, like, you know. So I think it is communicating from the get-go and just trying to keep uh, that safe space. Er- anyone that's going to be around your actors, make sure they're all on the same yeah. page. This right? is incredibly I mean, that, uh...
1: important, too, for um, just to add. Yeah, absolutely. Like everything Anthony's saying, um, trust is really the most important. Because there are some cases where you're not going to be able to work up that performance you just have to go Mm -hmm. and that's it and that happens a lot with with your co-stars you know certainly happened you know in, in my role in this film and so without that trust and that shorthand already in place with the director to know that you know all the chaos going on and then they just kind of you know shut that off so you can just be there present with them and you know the actor that you're working with in this case you know jasula and it's just you know it's just me and her, and me and her, and me and her. And the only other person talking in my ear is, is Anthony. Mm-hmm. That really allows you to kind of go to these places faster, more mm-hmm. precisely, and feel more free in them. Um, because, yes, it, uh, there's always a lot going on outside. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of chaos. There's a lot of, yeah, always. And so, you know, that ability, if you trust your director, it's much easier to shut that off as an actor, mm-hmm. to just kind of like disassociate from it and focus on what's in front of you, which is that performance in the
0: moment. And were you still able to, to kind of be in the moment, despite basically having a foot in production? I'm sure you were still aware of all the chaos that was happening, you know, given your involvement in the film, were you still able to, to to kind of straddle both, you know, actor and also involved in the, in the production? Yeah,
1: of course. Of course. Um, yeah. I mean, when I'm acting, I, I'm the kind of actor that I lose myself. (laughs) So, you know, and I've been doing this, for a while now and and hopefully, you know, for a lot longer too, you know, but I've definitely been grateful enough to be able to do it for for a while now. So having that experience under your belt definitely helps, you know, when you're kind of jumping in and you have to hit it fast, these really, really highs and lows and everything in between. Um, but yes, I get, I get lost in that, um, in the role for sure. The minute action's called, it's like I'm in a different place completely.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and, enough so where she doesn't often hear cut. This cut is like, this she is just true. keeps going. <laughs> She'll keep going. Cut's like, uh, no I mean
1: mean, I mean, he told, well, the, sometimes with really emotional roles, yeah, sometimes I don't hear cut, you know, because you're like in it. But uh, Anthony told me after the fact, and our first AD did too, he's like, he's like, i worked on so many movies, he's like, you're the only one that scares the shit out of me.
2: Whoa.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Like, after that first take, he's like, Oh, my God, because you know, it's like, you just got to go there. And, and, but the ability to be able to dive into that, you know, I think as an actor and talking as a performer, yeah, is that pre existing shorthand and trust with the director, I cannot stress that enough, because I had worked with Anthony before. um, When we had just met, you know, um, and it was cast in last shift. I knew what it was like working with him where he has this specific vision, yep. but, and he says, okay, this is what I'm going for. But then he just throws that out the window and says, okay, like, let's play, you know, almost like an acting coach, which is very refreshing because as an actor, it just, it frees you. It frees you from these expectations mm-hmm. of, okay, I have to achieve this, this and that. And instead just lets you be present. And I believe that's really when the magic happens, you know, when you're just giving, you mm-hmm. know, and receiving back from the other actor. And then it's, it's like a toss, like, the, like a ball toss. It's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah. Well, what are the, some, of the, some of the things a director can do to earn that trust? Because it sounds like it has to happen really early on in the production or pre-production. Um, Pre production. But it sounds like it's something that you can so easily lose. But so what are some of the keys to creating and maintaining that trust?
1: Like Anthony said, um, finding a connection with each performer right. that's really important. You know, um, I think it's the performer's responsibility to understand the resume of the director, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and their background, as much as it is the director's responsibility to understand the background of the performer and where they're coming from, too having those chats in pre-production is incredibly important. I'm a big believer in rehearsals too. Um, unfortunately on this film, we did not get to rehearse because it was just, the train was moving so fast. Um, so, and COVID,
2: COVID stuff got, mm. unfortunately. unfortunately. Yeah, that, was the
1: big, that, that was the biggest blocker was the COVID thing. Yeah. Um, so that was blocking us from Jess and I being able to rehearse, um, you know, and I know Anthony, you had like some, some hurdles with that too. Mm-hmm. So, A lot of rehearsals were done kind of, you know, on zoom or by ourselves. And so we kind of had to take that extra effort. So being able to just have a dialogue constantly with the director, in spite of that, the reassurances that, Mm -hmm. Hey, this is what we're going to hit. And this is how it's going to be on set really helps you as a performer, feel confident when you get on set to know, okay, this person has my back. Yeah. Um, and this is, this is going to work makes sense. that's really I, I mean i it starts early like the minute yeah. you cast them
2: <laughs> yeah and yeah. I, I think it is i think again it's 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 opening yourself up to them like don't try to pry into a, the easiest way to get someone to talk to you is to just tell them everything about yourself mm. tell the things that you're tell them the things that you're find that that personal story that's going to open them up emotionally and make them open up to you emotionally it's not it's not like it's not you're not manipulating the conversation you're just being honest and saying like hey i'm willing to talk about anything i'm not going to be shy here um this is going to be a good professional relationship and and i'm never going to make you do anything you don't want to do and i'm never going to make you feel uncomfortable yeah um that's just that's really what it comes down to and if you are in a situation where you don't get along with a cast member because not not every actor or situation you know you may, again you may be there may be people in your movie that you did not cast that producers may have cast or or the studio may have cast and, um, and maybe you don't get along with them that great but I think it's still finding that what is the thing that drives them as, a, as an actor how do they work figure out, how they like to work. I think that's also a, a, that's a question I ask every new actor I work with. How do you like to work? Yeah. How do you like to be directed? Um. I don't think that's, I don't, I never would be embarrassed by asking it. Cause you know, I think some directors want to hold all their cards tight. Maybe be like, Oh, I don't want people to know my tricks. Or is it like, if I, is this revealing too much? And I just say like, that's always a question I ask an actor. How do you like to be directed? Yeah. What, tell me a, a good story of a director you've worked especially seasoned actors like because there's two kinds of actors. There's there's actors that just want to be told what to do. And there's actors that don't want to be told what to do. You know? Mm -hmm. And there you just have to figure out what kind of actor there there is. Because you may get on like be as direct as possible. Never talk about like I never talk about like feelings or emotions. Like that stuff doesn't help actors. You can't tell an actor how to have a feeling. Yeah um you just can't i mean that's not how you get so you have to talk about facts situation what is the facts of this scene and let them kind of find the answer there but some actors are gonna be like i don't need all this bullshit. just tell me what you want <laughs> you know just tell me you want me to do it slower cool i'm doing you are want... right. you want me to say it louder awesome yeah because you know but they're always going to tell you oh don't do that as a director don't do that But there are some actors that just especially the very seasoned actors they're so far along in their craft they're like so i think it's good just to ask them in that first meeting how do you like to work what 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 does the director say to you that you like and then you'll know right away what kind of actor they are
1: yeah also that builds the trust and respect Mm -hmm. so then when you're on set they're already it's already there
0: yeah I mean, it sounds it's, it's largely about creating an environment of collaboration, figuring out yeah, yeah. how everybody can kind of collaborate to the bottom line instead of being a dictator, which I feel like is really important as a director. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, going back to some of the moments and visuals, it, this is very scary. <laughs> <laughs> and it takes a lot for me to say that. And I'm sure it takes a lot, you know, I, as weathered horror fans, I'm sure you had to dig deep to come up with some scares that you hadn't seen before. So what was what was the approach to making it scary? Because, I mean, again, I'm sure you guys wanted to come up with things that people hadn't seen before. What was the approach to the fear, as well as the tension building as well?
2: Yeah, I think it's, it's all a bit of, like, black magic, really. I mean, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you you know it's it's i think when you're getting into a script right you always have to follow the narrative and then figure out what's coming out of that narrative naturally like Mm -hmm. what are the because i've made movies i've made horror films that aren't meant to be scary you know what i mean like i've like clive barker's dread is not a necessarily scary movie Mm -hmm. it's a it's a psychological thriller and i've and I made another movie kind of like that called Extremity. Mm-hmm. They're not movies that my number one approach was like, oh, I want to scare people. Um, they're horror movies, but they're different kinds of horror films. This movie is very much a movie like I want to scare people from like the first minute on all the way to the end. Have it be that kind of joy ride. So yeah. it's it's creating a narrative that lends itself to that, that I can I can break away every three, four five, six minutes and do something scary. Right. So you have to create your narrative has to support that um both with what your lead character is doing and you and what your locations are. So that's right from the get go. If you if you if you create a premise um that supports that, then you'll have those opportunities to be like, Okay, I'm gonna scare people. And yeah, I think it's always a challenge to bring new stuff to horror fans to make it feel like it's something new. Yeah. And and I do think it comes down to the specificity of the storytelling. Cause let's be honest. It's like, it's rare. You're going to do something. Maybe, maybe two or three times in Malum, I'm doing something new. Mm-hmm. Right. But I'm doing a lot of things very specifically to the narrative. Right. So that they feel, Oh, completely appropriate and new because I'm watching it with this story structure. Um, so I think that's important to really just stay true to your your narrative and your in your structure in that way that it's like okay somebody's jumping out of a hallway but why is it scary in this movie right or someone's running up a stairwell and I can't see them I think a big thing for for me as a filmmaker sound design mm. is huge and sound was a key component to this movie. Whereas we we start the sound design in the pre production process, we have the sound team. They flew into Kentucky where we shot. They flew. We were in the location. They had two days in the location. They recorded just every sound that that location made. We also had actor sessions with with like background talent to do screams and shouts and running and various creepy sounds. Um, and you know I think in a few of Natalie's screams are in there as well nice (laughs) um but that lends itself that's like you're setting yourself up for success when you can do things like that yeah you you have to know that sound is just such a big part of of horror making horror filmmaking
0: Mm -hmm. yeah
1: oh i was gonna say like you know if you're just starting out you know with writing horror we've written a couple um horror scripts now the best the best place to start you know and at least for me too is you know being a performer and an actor is what scares you right. in, in real life? That's it. That's the question you have to ask. And instead of saying, oh, what's already been done? Because there's some amazing filmmakers out there, right? That have done so many amazing things in horror. Um, so it, I think it's always a bad idea to try to compare yourself to others and say, oh, well, that's already been done. Instead, just like go inward and say, well, what scares me? Mm. Like, And you will find that answer. You will. and then that, And then work from there with that kind of coming out. And yeah. then, then you'll join the group of amazing, you know, filmmakers with, you will find yourself discovering something new. Yeah.
0: Well, from that perspective, Anthony, was there any real fears that you channeled into this movie?
2: I mean, I'm always fascinated by like the, it, it comes up a lot in like my storytelling is the the people you can meet and you just don't know what their real motivations are. You know, you like how how how, don't, how much do we really know people? Right. You know, you 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 could be with someone a thousand times and never really know them or know what they their beliefs or their um, what they do when they're alone. Right. So I think the the cult factor comes into play a lot. That kind of mind think that that group think mentality and and that point of view that like someone could be completely normal and then you're like oh you're in a cult and like oh you just murdered someone last week oh cool all right um, <laughs> never know never know but and even, then I- jessica doesn't
1: even know her mother you know right. and she yeah. discovers this you know like she discovers and she doesn't know really know her father and you know you kind yeah. of this mystery unfolds with the, the film and you know it's uh it, it's the stranger you, you don't know and you know, the close family member that is the stranger, mm-hmm. you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's this whole dichotomy and just kind of, you know, working through that. It's pretty, pretty cool.
0: Yeah. What was the approach to building tension? Cause there is a lot of tension in the movie. Um, and I think scares, I think some of the best scares are led up with tension, not in the context of jump scares. I feel like everybody can see them a mile away and they have a place, mm-hmm. you know, they can be fun, but a lot of the the scares did not rely on jump scares in this movie. So wondering what was the approach to building tension? And was it kind of scientific? Did you observe like, well, the audience is feeling this now, so we have to, you know, lull them into a sense of safety and then we gotta, you know, do this or the other thing. How how did you approach the the overall tension graph of the movie, so to speak?
2: I think so. I I think like good horror is like a a magic trick, you know, you have to you have to entertain and and divert their attention. Right there's a process you're like you're doing an act and then you're diverting their attention and then you're scaring them. Um, I think that's a big part of it. I think I think the biggest part is on the page, is that because I don't know as a filmmaker I guess you have to trust your instincts and when you're writing it if it's on the page you just have to make sure you carry it to the finish line. Right. Make sure that tension is on the page. That it is very scientific. It's like okay this is how it's building throughout the scene and what is going to be the climax of this scene and then trying to follow through cuz i don't i don't know i know when when you're making a horror film you're always kind of conveying to the cast i think a a good actor is always going to be like this feels like it's taking too long and it's like no look like in, in a horror movie just believe me the audience is you want to take your time with these things you don't want to rush through it. So having having the cast on board to make sure the beats land, right? Mm. Like, okay, the, the audience is checking themselves. Okay, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here with that that actor. Um and then as an overall pace, I always go back to Predator. Like Predator is one of huh. my favorite films. And I think Predator is one of the like the best paced movies that you can get because that movie starts as a war film. It introduces something that's alien. Obviously, at the beginning, we know we know what kind of movie it's going to be, but but it introduces something, and it's so gradual with the steps that that predator takes that by the time you get to the last scene, and he takes off his mask, I'm like, what? Well, he's going to take off his mask. I I didn't even expect that because you know you can see a lot of movies where I don't know why you watch a monster movie or, or any kind of horror movie. And you're like, oh man, just get to it. Just get <laughs> to it. Just show me the monster. Just right. do that thing. And I don't think you ever want your audience to be there to, to ever be. You want them to be just behind you. There's also things that you want them to figure it out just a little before you before you reveal it to them. I think it's good to let your audience in on some things because it also lets their guard down. When you mm. let them figure something out, and then two seconds later you hit them with something they didn't expect. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's yeah. all a ga- it's all a game, but the ten- the tension thing is tough because I think a lot of I ed- I edited Melum too, and I think that's where you build. Mm. I think when you're in production, you just got to make sure you're getting is everything you need. Right, you just don't turn away it's until much. you're like, I got it, I got, I got it, I got enough to, to make this work. And then in the edit is where you, I think, where you really build. Yeah. That tension. Yeah,
0: makes sense. I would love to hear about your time with Clive Barker early in your career. I mean, that must have been such an incredible, formidable time period. Could you talk about that time? And I, from what I understand, it was the beginning of your career, right?
2: Very beginning. Yeah. I mean, Clive, I went to Emerson College in Boston, and I, I transferred. To they had a program where you could transfer to los angeles and that's really why i went to emerson because i was like okay i don't know anyone in hollywood so i go to a school that will facilitate that move for me like i'm gonna live there just gonna go down do my last semester and while i was there i was looking for an internship in horror and i reached out to my advisor i'm like who do you know that's in horror like is there and she's like well there's clive's company there's wes craven there's john carpenter and, and and um the producer that I worked with, Clive, he had gone to Emerson for a semester and he then transferred to NYU, but he was from Massachusetts, like myself. So I was like, well, that's a that's an in, right? That's someone I can talk to. And I hounded him for a while and he brought me up to the house to meet Clive, which was, of course, like the most important meeting of my life, like to this day. Uh, you know, it's that, it's that one meeting that's like... Uh, and when I had that meeting, we just got along got along, had a lot of common interests. And I know that they really they really needed the help at the company because they were doing a lot of things. And I got along with Joe Daly, who was the, the producer for Massachusetts, got along with him really well. And I started working there. Like as an intern, not very long as an intern, they hired me before I graduated college. And then I was assisting Clive. And when I started working for him, I hadn't read any of his books. It was just, I was very familiar with his, his films mm-hmm. is producing and directing, but had not read anything. So he had this great library there with all his books and I would just, you know, every night just read a new, you know, just read, 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 and just consumed every book of his. Um, and then I think I was able to kind of create a shorthand with him as well. That, I was like i i could see how he wrote and see mm-hmm. like what he focused on and that was such a big learning experience um, yeah uh something i said in another interview like as as a horror writer it's great to watch movies but i think those years i spent with clive consuming his material and see how he was as an author probably made me a much better writer mm. than any like screenplay book or anything i could read because in a screenplay, you don't have to scare – I mean, you should. You should scare your reader, but that may not be your priority as a screenwriter. As a novelist, if you don't scare your reader, they're not going to read your books. Right. Right? So, like, Clive and Stephen King, right? Like, they have to make sure that what's on the page is scary as hell. So, that was my core lessons with him, um, watching him, watching him write and, like, going on – go on the book tours with him. That was like my earliest stuff, spending a lot of time with Clive on the book tours and things like that. And then really getting thrown into the fire there in terms of producing. Like I was in meetings. I just had no business being in with like the heads of the studio. And, but that was because the company was so small. It was just, I was lucky to be able to do that. They were like, come, you know, take notes. We just need you there. And learning from those, those meetings that must have been amazing.
0: Were you there for the time when he was entertaining a mummy project with Mick Garris?
2: I uh, I know the project. Jeez, I'm trying to remember if it was right before I came on or if it was during. I think that was like right before I came. Oh, okay, on. got it, got it. I started there in 2002, and I worked really closely with Clive till about 2012. Oh wow! Um,
0: so you were with him for like 10 years
2: yeah yeah a long time i mean and Droid i directed in 2008 and that came out in like 2009 i think mm-hmm. and then but we had other projects in development like a lot of stuff of his all around the studios and based on his novels and things we yeah. spent a lot of years setting up projects and then trying to get you know like Midnight Meat Train we got made and then Book of Blood and yeah I
0: enjoyed the hell out of Midnight Meat Train the, with Bradley Cooper I feel like not enough people talk about it I l- really enjoyed it
2: I mean it's a solid movie and and Kitamura did such a great job with that yeah. movie it's just crazy I mean it has so much good action stuff in it too mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's a whole political side of that uh, there I don't know is, if right? you've heard before but it was a lot of drama at the time <laughs> Yeah, that but, actually
0: sounds familiar. I forgot what it was. But yeah, I remember hearing that there was some sort of nightmare that occurred. Yeah, I, I, I interviewed Ryuhei um, a couple years ago. Yeah, I think he got into it. I forgot the details, though. Probably got into it. Yeah. <laughs> um, was there anything interesting about Clive's or unexpected about Clive's process? I know he outlines, you know, whatever he writes. But beyond that, was there anything fascinating about his, his overall process that is, is not as well known?
2: Well, yeah, no, you're right. He handwrites everything, handwrites everything he does, um, and that is an extensive process. Like he he doesn't ever touch a keyboard. Um, Hmm. He just takes his black ink pen. He he also writes in a very unintelligible um, (laughs) (laughs) language (laughs) that you have to decide. You know, you have to learn. You have to learn how to decipher Clive. Yeah, Um, and then um, and he also is. uh, he keeps he siestas that was a big thing that's something he introduced in his movies too because I think he works late and when he was directing he would take a you would take a break in the afternoon just like a you know a siesta break huh and kind of shut shut the production down for that you know post-lunch uh very European thing to do yeah how long
0: um, would a siesta last
2: a it's usually siesta. like two hours I think it's usually about a two-hour break interesting and then you offset the schedule that way but he would do that during writing and he was you know he didn't leave the house a lot I mean when we during those times because he'd just be writing so much and and keeping endless notes and he would would start so many books at the same time almost like he had like I felt like 20 books in process going at once and he'd have just drawers of of, okay he'd, he'd organize well though because he'd be like okay this is the, the great secret show sequel earth like things that he still wants to get to um but yeah i mean when we when i was there you know we would schedule like okay we're gonna go out we are gonna go to the comic book store we're gonna go to the porn store you know we're gonna, we're gonna and that's it, that's it. <laughs> uh, those two places and that's it uh <laughs> and then um yeah i mean Clive was also uh, a great photographer and painter, I mean, right. if if you have people who have not painting was such, he became such a prolific painter, like on his own, just yeah. started painting in oils. if you haven't looked at his children's books or like the Abberat series, pick those books up and then you go back oh, and look yeah. at Abberat. If you look at Abberat, right there's like a a full page painting. You have no idea that that painting's like twenty by twenty feet big. They were oh huge. God in his house he had, a, he had a house that only how only hold holds the paintings wow like six paintings deep on each wall just a thousands and thousands of paintings in this one house that we would it was a great selling tool because like we'd bring people up to that house and we'd take generals and and they'd kind of be overwhelmed by it there's all these so paintings cool. in this house wow yeah. oh my god that must
0: have been a hell of a time
2: it was a great time yeah, yeah for sure especially a great way to start your career (laughs)
0: yeah i mean who better to learn from and i can now like after i found that out like i can see the influence in your work a little bit you know i can tell that you're kind of a disciple it's not you know clearly not derivative or anything like that but i'm like okay yeah i could i could tell that clive barker mentored this guy yeah yeah (laughs) that's
2: good that's good
0: oh yeah it's a bit it's a high compliment high compliment thank you um I know we got to wrap soon, but, um, a few just last quick questions, uh, throughout the course of your career, were there any helpful resources, either books, seminars, or anything along those lines that helped you either creatively or career wise?
2: Natalie, you go first. (laughs)
1: Um, save the cat. I mean, I know that's like such. It, there you go. It um, is. Yeah,
2: it it's like a great a book.
1: Great, great book. A great first book. Like if you're like struggling to write, um, it just kind of breaks everything down so easily, and you're like, "What? It's really this?" And then you're like, "Oh my gosh, it is. That's the formula." You know, and of course, you can change the rules. You know, and and bend them. You don't want to necessarily break them, but. It, that gives you like the the basic gist of the formula. And then from there, you can kind of, you know, mold your own thing. So Mm. uh, from a writing perspective, that's probably the best tool. And then, you know, as an actor and performer, um, it's just, you know, trying to find the right acting coaches. And Mm. to be honest, like, they're all extremely good, you know, um, in their own way, because they bring different experiences. So I personally feel like the more you study with, the more well-rounded you'll be as a performer. Yeah. So I've I've studied with many um, throughout Los Angeles, and each of them brought a very unique um, tool that I was able to add to my toolbox that I could then utilize depending on what film I was cast in and what was mm. being required of me by the director. Um, and so I think as a performer, the more tools you have in your toolbox, you know, from acting coaches and acting classes or Doing stage plays, I did a lot of stage plays, you know, when I first started acting. Um, and even your life experiences, the more things that you do as an actor, you know, like, you know, as a performer, like, it's great to be obsessed with acting, you know, in the business and whatnot, but make time for friends and family because right. in those moments, you're going to find these experiences that you can pull from later, too. So it's a separate set of tools in that regard. Um, and then, you know, for me, definitely as a writer and creator, you know, Um, and and working with Anthony I'm a huge movie fan huge (laughs) I watch so many movies old movies you know current movies modern movies and every every single genre and the more that you watch I feel like the better storyteller you become um, because you start to appreciate all the nuances and interesting things that other people that have come before you put out there and and again it starts to really get you going and I think on a subconscious level you start to go okay what really moves me in this yeah. way? And, that, and then that starts to come out. So,
2: Yeah. I think that's a huge part of it is like watching movies, watching as many movies as you can, but also then going back deliberately with a pen and paper and, and dissecting it. Yeah. Cause, cause you, you can't absorb it all. I mean, I think you have to look at it like, okay, why is this happening here at this point And when, what does it lead to? Mm-hmm. I think, um, I think being, an editor is a is a great tool for a filmmaker hmm. I, I think because a, a great book on editing is called blink of an eye because um, to me I, it doesn't matter what you do in pre-production in production that movie comes together in the edit yeah you have to be you have to be hugely involved or or i i i watch every frame of the footage we shoot I, I will just watch everything um and when i'm editing myself um that's where the movie comes together yeah and it's like it's just becomes a different process at that point so i think really knowing the craft of editing so you can either communicate with an editor uh or do it yourself. Is, is hugely important. Yeah.
1: Anthony's right about the editing. Just to interject real quick is that, you know, he had encouraged me. He's like, I think you'd be good at it. You know, you should pick this up. I literally just picked up editing oh, cool. and I have to say it is changed. You know, my viewpoint even more and made it more richer yeah. into storytelling. And it's really helping me. If, if it sounds crazy as a writer, mm-hmm. sure knowing does. that skill set is helping me take the writing to the next level. And so absolutely. Agree. I mean, that's such a good tidbit
0: yeah now they all they all inter interlock mm-hmm. well it was a real pleasure meeting you both thank you for being here and congrats on the thank movie you. it's getting high praise very and well deserved very high praised and uh really really enjoyed it what is next for you guys
2: we're gonna take a break but wait <laughs> natalie and i have a, a thriller shopping around right now called the step counter all right kind of a hand that rocks the cradle type film
0: very cool um
2: yeah and then you know hopefully we do a sequel to this i'd like to i'd like to explore this world more cool um for sure
0: well i'll be looking out for it thanks again guys
2: thank, thank
0: you. you all right all right all right here are some key takeaways from this conversation with anthony de blasi and natalie victoria number one make hell a safe space I've talked with people at length on this show about how horror can be substantially more demanding on actors because it requires some of the most intense emotions. For this reason, horror directors need to take particularly great care of their actors. Anthony mentioned that it's essential for directors to shield their actors from on-set turmoil and chaos, especially schedules and time constraints. By ensuring your actors are cocooned from these pressures, even at the cost of other departments, you're able to provide them with the environment necessary for excellent performances. Number two, an extension of number one, forge an emotional connection with your actors. Anthony also stressed the significance of establishing genuine emotional connections with your actors. It's the director's job to uncover the emotional truth that resonates with the actor for every scene. But rather than rudely prying them for emotionally intimate details of their life, Anthony stated that he would often reveal intimate and vulnerable details about himself and how he related to a scene, which would enable his actors to open up. Art often requires vulnerability. If you want your actors to go to dark places, you have to be willing to go there first. Number three, find out how your actors like to work. Anthony and Natalie underlined the importance of understanding your actor's preferred method of working and direction style. Encourage them to share past directing experiences, both good and bad. Every actor is different, and tuning into their specific needs and methods of working will mold you into a more versatile director. Number 3. Create a Repository When it came to the creation of Malum, Anthony mentioned that various elements, including dreams, sketches, vague ideas and concepts, had been incorporated into the film, a lot of which he collected over a long period of time. Fortunately, his habit of consistently jotting down ideas, no matter how underdeveloped they were, provided a wealth of material, or firewood, as David Lynch would say, all of which was at his disposal during the writing process. As a result, Anthony strongly encourages the use of note-taking apps as they can be game changers. I personally recommend Evernote or Notion for this. Amassing your thoughts over time can make facing that blank page far less daunting. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. We scare because we care. Hey guys, one last thing before you head off and this is The Howl. How would you like a monthly newsletter featuring a recap of the latest horror news, my personal movie recommendations, updates from the show, and cool stuff I've recently discovered? If this sounds like something you'd enjoy, sign up for my monthly email newsletter, The Howl, today. You can sign up for The Howl by visiting nicktaylor.com slash thehowl. That's nicktaylor.com slash thehowl.